Hello, I'm Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, host of Politically Pastoral Conversations, where we interrogate faith, politics, and society with a flair through conversations with people from all walks of life. Please help support this great effort to raise voices that you've heard before, but raise new voices. As again, we try to interrogate faith, politics, and society. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, and you're listening to Politically Pastoral Conversations. People from all walks of life met around the Lincoln Memorial and Reflecting Pool for the National Action Network-sponsored 2020 Commitment Gathering in March that Reverend Al Sharpton and Martin Luther King III convened. King III and his 12-year-old daughter, Yolanda Renee King, both gave rousing speeches in the very spot their ancestor delivered the iconic I Have a Dream speech exactly 57 years ago. Black gay civil rights icon Baird Rustin who was largely overlooked at the 2020 Commitment March, made its prototype possible. Today's conversation features a discussion with the late Rustin's former partner, Walter Nagel. Walter provides insights on Rustin's life journey, social justice philosophy, and reveals what he might have thought about the Black Lives Matter movement. Join us for this interesting and rich conversation. But first... Here's a snippet of Baird's spoken contribution to the 1963 March on Washington. Bring to you the executive director of the March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. Ladies and gentlemen, The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it includes public accommodation, decent housing, integrated education, FAPC, and the right to vote. Do you have something profound to say? Then let Anchor lift your voice. Podcasts are a great way to share your experiences interests, insights, and knowledge, while gaining a following. You could use that following to grow a business, rally people around a cause, 
or to entertain people. There's no reason not to start a podcast. Either way, let Anchor be the platform that lifts your voice today. I'm Reverend Jason Carson Wilson, and this is the Politically Pastoral Conversations. And today our conversation is with Walter Nagel, the partner of civil rights icon, Baird Rustin. Welcome and thank you for agreeing to have this conversation. Thank you, Jason. Good You're to be welcome. with you. Thank you. Describe for us how you and Baird connected and, and just some snippets of your relationship as, as much as you feel comfortable sharing. Well, we met, we actually met face-to-face uh, quite by chance here in New York City. Uh, we were on a corner waiting for a light to change and looked at each other and we we started talking. So, I mean, there was, ob- there was an obvious attraction there. Um, but, you know, being attracted to somebody is one thing, but being able to build and sustain a relationship over a period, any period of time, but in our case, 10 years, you know, involves a similarity of values, um, ideals, uh, outlook of you, the way you view life. And um, that was something we shared. I, I, I knew of Bayard uh, when I was growing up. Um, I came, really came of age in the 60s when the African-American struggle was at its peak. And Bayard's name was always showing up in the newspaper stories or many of the newspaper stories, especially related to tactics and strategies and the whole issue of nonviolence versus violence or separatism. And being somewhat of a religious person myself at that time in my life, uh, I was fascinated with the whole idea of nonviolent struggle and bringing about change through nonviolence. And so Bard was speaking to, speaking to that part of me very, very much. So I kind of felt, even though I hadn't known him until we actually met, um, I felt that I knew who he was and what he stood for. And I was a great admirer. And so what would you say that you um, learned from him? Probably probably the greatest lesson, and I can't say that I've learned it exactly or that I always practice it. Um, patience, really. Uh, staying with staying with things, staying with um, whatever struggles you're facing, whether it's in your own life or, or, or the movement, and being um, at peace with yourself and peaceful in your approach to how to resolve the struggle. Um, Bard was somebody that, uh, you know, when you see the images of him speaking, sometimes he can, you know, he, he's very militant. You can be nonviolent and militant. Uh, and forceful, and sometimes even angry. Um, but, you know, in his everyday life, in his personal life, he was usually very calm, very thoughtful in his approach to issues uh, and struggles. And so I think, um, you know, kind of maintaining your equilibrium, maintaining your head, being patient about things, and, um, you know, not being optimistic, but not setting your expectations too high. Kind of piggybacking on that, on that concept of expectations um, and not setting them too high. There's been a lot of talk around sort of incremental change, and that's really what we've witnessed in in some ways in our society for decades. And I guess how would Baird respond to the Black Lives Matter movement that it really seems to be kind of a response to this incremental change uh, approach to creating change? 
Well, I'm not sure I I'm I'm not sure I understand that that's what they are about. But if if you're saying that that's what they're about, then I can address that. Um, you know, when Bard was very young, uh, when he first started out in his act, well, in his activism, but certainly when he came to New York, you know, he was very impatient, uh, very radical in the sense that he wanted things to change quickly. Um, you see that in his work, certainly in his work with A. Philip Randolph in the 1941 March on Washington. Um, Bard worked with Mr. Randolph very closely on that, organizing. And when Franklin Roosevelt gave in to the major demand of the campaign, which was integration of the defense industries, Mr. Randolph basically canceled the march and said, you know, we got what we wanted, go home, we don't have to march. And Bard, of course, was very upset with that because he was young and fiery and somewhat radical. So he didn't have the kinds of patience that he developed over the years. Um, and he went out and uh, kind of denounced Randolph and said that they should go, go through with it. But of course, he didn't have the kind of following um, and adherence that Mr. Randolph had. So he wasn't able to really get anywhere with that. Um, and as he got older, he, I think he came to understand that really to create change in a democratic society, you need to get the majority of people on your side. And that's the majority of all people, you know, whether they're white, black, uh, Asian American, Native American, uh, all the various religious types, you need to create a coalition of people because a small minority of people is not going to be able to affect change. Now they may be able to influence and build a movement. And I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been from what I've seen, uh, especially lately, has been largely successful in building a coalition, a multiracial coalition, uh, people from different religious communities joining in. So I think they've been very successful in that. So I think he would be, he would certainly be supportive of that strategy because he knows you need, you need a majority of people to really bring about change. On uh, the fact that they've, for the most part, uh, at least the, as from what I understand from the organizers, that they've remain committed to nonviolent and peaceful protest, he would support that, certainly. Um, it's really unfair to characterize uh, a movement by uh, some of the disorder and disruptions that have taken place. And I'm sure not as a result of Black Lives Matter leaders calling for that, but people coming in from the outside trying to promote disruption. You don't characterize a movement by that any any more than you would characterize the African-American civil rights movement by focusing on the black Muslims at the time. So um, I think by and large, they've, they've remained committed to the values and the uh, ideas that they, they set out in, in their, um, I guess you could say manifesto or the ideas that they put forth when they, when they organized. So Byrd would be supportive of that. And I guess to, to sort of clarify kind of uh, the question that may, may have been convoluted was that really, uh, I mean, from where I'm standing, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is demanding that we end police brutality now. However, there's been a lot of, and I think that's, that, that question's been asked for, for decades, but it's finally kind of is being asked point blank now. But in the interim, there's been well, let's do police reform. Let's 
um, you know, let's look at everything except the behavior of the police. Um, and I, so, so I guess that that's kind of where I was going with the kind of the, uh, the movement speaking against uh, speaking out against inc incremental change in a way, just that there's been focus on other kinds of things related to law enforcement, but not specifically. I mean, in, in relation to legislation, but not necessarily specifically to let's just stop killing unarmed black people. Just to, just as a clarification. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess how would you um, describe Bear? Well, I would describe him as someone who is very intelligent, um, very compassionate, uh, very loving, a very gentle person, certainly in his personal and, and working life. Um, somebody who really listened uh, and somebody who was, um, you know, you talk about the idea of incremental change and, you know, when you see him talking at the March on Washington and reading the demands, you know, he's reading them and it's like, now, now kind of thing. But, you know, he knew that it wasn't going to happen overnight. And so I think it's, you know, it's one thing to call for now. It's another thing to understand that things are not going to change overnight. That doesn't mean you become complacent and you don't keep on with the struggle. And I think, and again, one of the things with the Black Lives Matter movement now is that, you know, they've, they've managed to continue marching uh, all through the summer, maybe not to the same degree that they were, but certainly all over the country. And this latest incident out in, in, in I guess it was uh, Wisconsin, I think, um, has, you know, kind of re-energized another uh, whole series of demonstrations. So I think the fact that you have an ongoing you know, like people say, you know, it's, it's, it's a movement now. It's not just a call or a protest. It, it's become more of a movement. Um, so, Bar you know, Bayard was, uh, when the movement really started taking off post-Montgomery, post-prayer pilgrimage, um, you know, when the Freedom Rides started, um, you know, people came to Bard, as the young people came to Bard because he was, in their eyes, the radical one in terms of the, what you could call mainstream leadership. Now, Bard wasn't the leader of an organization at that point. He was kind of a uh, rabble rouser for hire. He was technically on the staff of the War Resisters League, but he was working very closely with Dr. King, helping him organize demonstrations and write things and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, he didn't have a constituency. You could say that he had to answer to the way that a Roy Wilkins or a Whitney Young um, had, had to answer to. So he was able to kind of be the more radical of the group. And that, this was very appealing to young people who tend to be radi more radical than they are when they get older. So he was a very appealing figure. So again, going back to his demeanor, he would listen to young people. He would listen to what they had to say. He would give them jobs. The whole March on Washington in 63, many of the staff members were very young people, uh, people, some probably still in high school or just out of high school, some in college, some out of college. And he helped them, he mentored them. He helped them develop their skills, their organizing skills, uh, things that they brought to the table. And he was open 
to their talents and their abilities. He would listen to them. So he was able to work very effectively um, with a younger generation of people. What does it mean to have the responsibility to, to carry on his legacy? Well, I don't think I, I don't, wouldn't say that I look at myself as carrying on his legacy. Uh, I think I promote it. I promote the values that he stood for. Um, but I think largely it's, uh, you know, as far as the carrying on is concerned, it's really up to a younger generation of people to do that. Uh, I'm certainly happy to talk with and advise and be part of, but I don't feel like um, I'm certainly not a replacement for, for Bayard Dressman. Um, I think I have to behave myself sometimes <laughs> more than I might have if I was not involved with uh, someone of Bayard's stature, because I think my own behavior could reflect on his legacy, rightly or wrongly. I mean, we are all our own people. But, um, you know, if I was out there misbehaving or acting up, you know, the association would be Walter Nagel, you know, former partner of the late Bayard Rustin kind of thing. I mean, I, mm -hmm. to a certain degree, I've sacrificed the, a degree of my anonymity. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's certainly for a good cause because, again, I believed I shared the values and the ideals of Byard, so I'm happy to try and um, maybe perhaps curb some of my own instincts at some time so that um, it does not reflect badly on him. And, um, and I guess speaking of, of his legacy and also of how he was treated in, in life by certain um, organizations. Um, so a disclaimer, I'm, uh, the Baird Western Liberation Initiative that I, I'm the founding executive director of is also the, the um, its fiscal agent is uh, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, and they they chose to do that in part to, frankly, reconcile with how they felt the organization mistreated Baird, um, and I think they're they're doing some other other activities um, internally to to rectify some of that. Um, and I guess, what's your response to that? Well, the Fellowship of Reconciliation was a very important part of Bayard's life and his development. And actually the fellowship was one of the first organizations I contacted or learned about when I was facing the draft at age 18 and trying to make up my own mind about what to do and how to respond. I reached out to the Fellowship of Reconciliation. So, I mean, by, you know, Bayard um, supported the FOR. Uh, their mission didn't always necessarily agree with them on some policy statements. Um, and I think, you know, I'm happy that they have reached out to me and have uh, lifted Bayard up, if you will, certainly during their centennial year several years ago. Um, because Byron, I think, was also an important part of their development. You know, the organization affected him, but he affected them, uh, in, especially in their uh, coming to terms with the issue of racial justice. You know, it was, after all, Byard and James Farmer, Jim Farmer, um, Bill Sutherland, um, all African-Americans, and a few white white guys back in the day, George Hauser, um, who pushed A.J. Musty and pushed the Fellowship of Reconciliation to get involved in the issue of racial justice. 
they felt that um, Jim Crow and segregation was a form of violence. And if the FOR was about opposing violence, they needed to take a stand on the issue of uh, segregation and racism in this country. So out of that initial push, um, a small group, a small committee formed, which later became the Congress of Racial Equality, its own organization, which Jim Farmer was the head of for many years. Uh, so, you know, I think they had a, Bayard, you know, Bayard was mistreated, I think, but you have to look at it in the context of the time. Um, and then the very strict, I would say, somewhat narrow uh, religious view that A.J. Musty took at the time. You know, being gay was just not, um, not acceptable. Uh, it wasn't considered Christian by many people. Um, and so I think, you know, Bard, Bard's own uh, behavior, his acting out, um, contributed to his falling out with A.J. and the F.O.R. Um, but again, I think that, you know, they have tried to bring him, now that we have a different view of uh, gay identity, gay relationships, I think the F.O.R. has become much more of an inclusive organization in that sense, and certainly in the religious sense. I mean, when Bard was working with them, it was a quote unquote Christian pacifist organization. And now it is a, um, a multi-religious, uh, you know, all people, people of all faiths are welcome to join the FOR. Uh, it, I think the, the commitment is your commitment to nonviolence and your commitment to pacifism and being against war. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Jewish or Buddhist or Muslim or anything else. It, it, it has more to do with your commitment to the FOR's ideals. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I'm, uh, in addition to them serving as a fiscal agent, um, they also invited me to, to speak on uh, my ministry as part of um, a campaign with her called Gathering Voices, and I've shared some uh, uh, some theological reflections, but I just really wanted to kind of offer that opportunity to kind of speak to uh, how the organization has changed. So, so thank you. And so I guess uh, we talked about what you learned from Bayard, but what do you think this generation can learn from Bayard? Well, what do you mean by this generation? Or well, I guess maybe just <laughs> yeah. well, young people or those those who just don't those who are just discovering Bayard. What do you think they can learn from it? That's an interesting question. I think um, well, if somebody wants to learn something from Bayard and study Bayard, I think they you know they should go to his writings, read some of his writings, um, take a look at some of the films that have been done, especially Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, which I'm wearing a button here. Uh, about it. Um, I think probably Byard's most important role in the African-American struggle and, and, and any struggle that he was involved with, but especially the, the civil rights struggle in the 60s, was his strategic thinking, his ability to analyze things, uh, to think ahead in terms of, well, where do we want to be you know, in a month or in, in six months or in a year and sort of plan accordingly, not just constantly be in a position where you're reacting to um, 
an event or to something that a president or some other elected official says, you know, you want to have you want to have a plan, um, a long term plan. And I think um, that's something that, that certainly younger generations could could consider. I'm not I don't mean to suggest that they don't have that, but I think it's an important part of of building the movement, you know, where do you want to be and how do you get there? Um, the other thing I think is, you know, Bard's uh, commitment to peaceful change and, and to nonviolent strategies, you know, how do you go about bringing change in a democratic society? Well, you have to, as I think it was Gandhi who said, you have to be the change you want to see, uh, or you, you have to be the person that you want other people to be. Um, and so I think, you know, having a personal commitment to your own development as a human being, as a loving, loving um, accepting, uh, tolerant um, person is, is important also. To hear you talk about, obviously, needing to sacrifice anonymity to an extent to make sure that you're able to um, not tarnish his his memory or legacy. Um, even so, as you said, you, you're your own person. So what are philosophies that you hold dear? Well, I would say a commitment to, well, what, you know, basically the principles that Bayard held dear to him, um, the, the principles of Quakerism that he was raised on, uh, the belief in the, in the oneness of the human family, uh, the belief in treating people as equals, um, not using violence or not treating people violently, being open to all kinds of ideas and all kinds of um, situations, which you may not always agree with, or you may figure out you don't want to be part of that, but at least keep you know trying to keep an open mind. I think I try and and, and do those things, uh, and I don't mean to suggest that I'm always successful. I'm not. But um, as Bayard said, or, you know, Bayard used to quote, um, I guess, one of the uh, Hebrew scholars, uh, you know, ours is not, uh, it's not our job to finish the task, but, but never to lay it down. And so you don't, you know, don't expect perfection or completion of the job. You just do the best you can as you go along. Uh, so I think I try to keep a commitment to those ideas. Um, not expecting too much of myself, not being overly demanding, uh, and trying, you know, trying to make a contribution where I can. And so, um, what do you, um, what did you and Bayard do for fun? I'm sorry, what did we do for fun? Yeah, just for oh. entertainment. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't want to tarnish his image here. No, I. <laughs> We, um, I, you know, I would say if you kind of looked at a, uh, an ordinary weekend in our lives when we were both in New York, which you know, was usually the case, but not always, um, you know, we were, both, we were both fairly independent spirits. Um, you know, Bard had lived most of his adult life alone, and um, I hadn't really had a steady partner until I met Bard. Uh, I was age 27 at that time. So we were in a situation where we were very self-reliant and independent, could kind of do the things that we like to do on our own, but then come together and 
do things together, which we also enjoyed. So for example, on a typical weekend, I was, I was a photographer and very often I would get up on Saturday morning and go spend four or five hours in, in the dark room. Uh, Bard would get up a little bit later and um, I very often go to an auction, one of the small auction houses in New York City. Bard was a great collector of uh, uh, Western religious art, Western European religious art, African art, uh, walking sticks. Um, and so he would go to a local auction and, you know, see what he could find. And very often I would meet him at that point at the auction after I was done in the dark room. And towards the end of the day, we would stroll down to Greenwich Village uh, where there were a number of antique shops and we would walk across Bleecker Street and spend time with several of the antique dealers that Byard knew, sit down and have a glass of wine, maybe some cheese and crackers. And very often we would end up at a friend of his uh, who li also lived in Greenwich Village for a Saturday night dinner. Sometimes just the three of us, very, uh, very often uh, more people would come in and it would usually, you know, end up in a discussion of current events, days events, uh, things like that that were going on. So really our life was, I would say our life was fairly simple in some, in some respects. Um, but we shared, a, we shared an appreciation for the arts, for ideas. Um, uh, we did a lot of traveling together, especially uh, in the last years of Bard's life when he was more involved with international affairs. Uh, we had friends that had places in different parts of the world and very often we would go and stay there or visit with them. So we, we enjoyed that also. So are there any new uh projects that you're you're working on or that the the Rustin Fund is is working on? Well there are several that I am working with people on uh, in collaboration with I guess you could say. Um, there's something called the March on Washington Film Festival which you may be aware of because I think it is it's based in DC and they are uh, going to be doing a showing of Brother Outsider uh, in a few weeks. I don't have the exact date, um, but we are pre-recording a, a panel of people uh, who are gonna be talking about Bard and talking about the film. Uh, we're gonna be recording that next week actually. So I think the, the actual event will maybe may a week later. I'm gonna try, I will try and post it on Facebook and things once I have all the details. But I know the panel is gonna include me, it's gonna include Bennett Singer, uh, one of the directors and producers of the film. It's gonna include a gentleman named Clarence Jones, who was, uh, an, is an, an attorney and who worked very closely with Dr. King. Um, and I'm not sure who else is gonna be on the panel at this point, but we're working on that. Uh, I'm. There's another group who are doing something for, hmm, there's gonna be a Facebook presentation that's being, being worked on. Uh, a couple of um, television programs, which I think will be airing in the fall, uh, specifically on LGBT heroes, heroes heroines, of which Bard is included. Uh, so there are gonna be a bunch of things happening I would say between now and uh, Gay History Month, which I believe is in, in October. So yeah, I mean, things kind of pick up 
around the anniversary of the march, which of course is this Friday, things sort of pick up and suddenly I start getting calls uh, about it and to you know, speak about it and speak about Bayard. So, you know, it's kind of a busy time of year. Are you planning to participate in the march? No. Well, it's my, I don't know. I don't know that much about it at this point. I, it's my understanding that a lot of it is gonna be virtual, but I do think that, I think I read something last night or this morning that there are gonna be some people assembling and that they're going to, I guess, march to the Lincoln Memorial over to Dr. King's, uh, the King Memorial in Washington. Mm-hmm. But no, I have no, I have no plans to come to Washington. Um, one thing I do do, which is sort of in the Quaker tradition, I, I wasn't really part of the large demonstrations that were taking place up here early on. Part of the reason was, you know, everything's done, um, everything is organized nowadays on telephones and on uh, iPads and uh, on Facebook. And I'm one of these people that goes around looking for signs posted somewhere. Um, and you don't see a lot of that anymore. Things kind of happen very spontaneously. But I am part of a small group. Well, I don't want to say too small, but there are a number of people who live here in the cooperative where I live and where Bayard lived, um, who sort of do a vigil every Friday uh, from 5 to 5.30, uh, standing uh, socially distanced, wearing masks, holding signs in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I'm part of that every Friday. And uh, it started out actually, it started out in June because one of the organizers of the LGBT pride group here in the co-op decided it, was a, it would be make sense to kind of coalesce and build a coalition and support, mm-hmm. show our support for the Black Lives Matter movement. So we were standing during the month of June holding signs, you know, about both causes. and we decided just to carry on with that. So I, I've been doing that every Friday when possible. So uh, anything else that you'd like to add or anything you think I forgot to ask? Well, yeah, I think I'll, uh, I, would add, I would add a couple of, a couple of things uh, because I think, well, you know, I would say that, um, um, you, you know, people that know Bayard, um, really associate him with the 1960s and with the 1963 March on Washington, especially, and with his work with Dr. King. But at that point, you know, he was in his 50s. He, 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 um, he was a middle-aged man. And so you have to kind of look back at, well, what was this guy doing 20 years ago that brought him to this point? And if you look back in Bard's early development, and especially with his work with the FOR, he was deeply committed to the ideas of Christian nonviolence and Christian pacifism. And that's what the FOR was all about. And Bayard really bought into that and believed it. Um, and I think he, he held close and carried, carried on that belief throughout his life. But as he got older, And as he started seeing the potential for trying to make systemic change or broad-based change, he realized that you had to be a little more broad, that you had to reach out to other communities. Not every community, you know, not everyone was going to um, even be a pacifist, and certainly not everyone in the country was Christian, especially as time went on. 
And so, although he tempered some of that um, faith-based, I guess you could say, rhetoric that he used to use in the 40s, the values that he adhered to were really the values that I would say most, if not all, religious organizations adhere to. So that, you know, he was traveling around in the 40s speaking to religious groups, but also to labor groups, to um, community groups, women's groups, young people, colleges. And he realized that, you know, to build this coalition, you needed to appeal to all of those. So he toned down some of the very uh, Christian-oriented rhetoric, if you will, but not, not by sacrificing the values that were really the root of that, of the root of their activism and his activism. So he was able to make a much broader appeal. And I think, you know, anybody that's going to build a movement for democratic change in a large, uh, in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious society really needs to keep that in mind. If you keep yourself very parochial or very sectarian, uh, you're going to have, you're going to have a limited, limited, um, in a uh, limited, uh, effects, if you will. Uh, and I think Bard was able to go beyond that, and which is why I think he was successful in appealing to so many people. Well, thank you again. I, I really appreciated that, that insight. I mean, I was, uh, that's, it kind of really speaks to um, maybe something I saw in some of the things I learned about him, but couldn't really articulate. And because uh, I knew there was, there, there was something there that I wanted to emulate uh, within the context of my own ministry, but couldn't really articulate. And so that, I appreciate you sharing that because it kind of helps me understand kind of where or, or how I'm trying to, have been trying to apply what I have learned from, from learning about Byron and, and discovering it. So thank you. Happy to be of help. Again, I just really appreciate this conversation. Th uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, thanks for joining us today. I hope this conversation was enlightening and inspiring. May learning about or being reintroduced to angelic troublemaker Baird Rustin and his former partner Walter Nagel give you kernels of courage to fight injustice, or may it fortify you in these troubling times. Please join us for another Politically Pastoral Conversations episode when we'll talk with Black LGBTQ educator, faith leader, and social justice warrior Reverend Naomi Washington Leapart. Peace be with you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.